0: We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to finish up this chapter today, and we are still on the subject of Christian liberty. I'm going to make this a little higher here. Paul has taken quite a bit of time to tell us about Christian liberty and to challenge us, and uh, I have found it to be challenging myself, and I, I hope you have as well. As we look here at 1 Corinthians 9, Paul has established in chapter eight, that while believers have liberty to do the things that um, are not strictly forbidden in scripture, there's something that limits that liberty, isn't it? And it's it's called love. Love limits our liberty. And in fact, if you remember, he gave a hypothetical situation at the end of um, chapter eight. He said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again, right? That was a hypothetical situation. He'd be willing to do that for uh, a brother. But in chapter 9, he's gone a step further. He sought to use an illustration that was not hypothetical, an illustration from his own life. Last week, Paul presented a liberty, a, a, a right that he had as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what that, that liberty, that right was? It was a right to be supported by the churches that he served. And that was a fairly straightforward and easy to understand passage. We went through and we saw six things, right? Six things Uh, six reasons, really, that Paul had given as to why he should be able to receive support from uh, the churches. The first, he was an apostle. The second, it was the normal, customary thing to do. Um, It's in God's law. It's uh, done by others, for others. In Corinth, particularly, they were doing that. It's the universal pattern. And finally, he said, Jesus commanded it, probably referring to Jesus' command in Luke chapter 10, where he said, when you remain in a house, eat whatever they give you. Why? For the laborer is worthy of his wages. So that is his argument. And boy, what an ironclad argument, right? If you were there and Paul was saying, well, let me tell you about my liberty, and he gave you those six reasons, you'd feel like, well, okay, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good defense. I mean, he had defense from Scripture, from history, from the customs of, of the world. And so he could surely demand the right for support. He could demand support from the Corinthians because really, what could they say in their defense, right, after he's said all that? But having established all of those reasons, that solid argument for why he should receive support from the church, here in this section, to finish up chapter 9, he explains why he refused that right. Verses 15 to 27 really give us two main reasons, Paul, Paul gives. Two main reasons as to why he, he chose this. He didn't have to do this, he just chose to not accept that right. And the two reasons are, I'll just tell you the beginnings, to, to guard his reward and to gain others for Christ. So we're going to see these things as we go through chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 15, and we'll read on through verse 27. So let's look at it. Verse 15, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that, I should be, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more." And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law is without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for these words from Paul, but ultimately these words from you, the divine. And I just pray, Lord, that you would fill this place with your spirit, that your spirit would be present here, Lord, to reveal truth to us, to guide us into truth, help us to see the truth, the rich and wonderful truth in these passages, Lord. And I just pray that um, God, you would just begin to open up our hearts to receive these things. Several weeks now we've been talking about this, and Lord, maybe some might be getting tired of the subject, yet Paul persists, and Lord, you persist, and we want to be open to what you want to see us to see today. So we just pray that you be present with us, guide us into your truth for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love the big amens in front by the kids here, by the way. That's awesome. Okay. Well, let's look at this. That pretty simple thing. I'm just going to give you the the first point here that Paul's going to give us is to guard his reward. That's why he has chosen to refuse his right. And it's going to come briefly, but let me look at verse 15 first, because this is where we're starting. He's just given all these reasons, six reasons as to why he should get support. And then in verse 15, he says, but I've used none of these things. Nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. So Paul says, I've given you all these great reasons I should be paid, but I haven't used any of those things. And in case you think I'm writing this to gain sympathy or to use subterfuge to sort of get support, I'm not doing that either. Now, this was always Paul's policy. Wherever he went, wherever he served, he just refused to get support. And I mentioned that briefly, but I want to remind you of that. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he tells them, You remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And Paul meant that he preached to them during the day, and he labored at night, and he labored during the day, and he labored during the... I mean, he, he built tents, didn't he? And he did that so that he could give them the gospel freely laboring freely not asking them for support so he wouldn't be a burden to them later on in his second letter in second Thessalonians 3 8 he reminds them of his policy nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you now listen when Paul eventually left the Thessalonians well guess what he did receive support from them uh, uh, they, they were no doubt one of the generous churches, the Macedonian churches that we read about last week that, that gave uh, uh, the abundance of their joy and poverty. Do you remember that? We looked at that. Their poor churches had given to the ministry of Paul, but it was after he had left. Um, and I want you to see what he writes to these Corinthians in his second letter. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just a short right-hand turn, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at the words that he used uses uh, here, verse 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8. I robbed other churches, (laughs) taking wages from them to minister to you. Do you see that? And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Do you see that? So Paul made a point to remind them that when I was with you, I didn't ask for support. In fact, I robbed, he uses the word robbed from other churches. Now, he didn't go rob them, did he? But he's just saying they really should have been the ones to support him, but he allowed the Macedonian churches to support him instead. Now, why did he refuse that support? Well, Paul now is going to give us this first reason. He says, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. That's pretty, pretty brash. He'd rather be dead than to cause anyone to think that he was preaching for money is what he's saying. He didn't want the reputation to say someone like Balaam in the Old Testament. If you remember reading Numbers 22, Balaam was a prophet for hire, right? I mean, if you pay him the right money, he'll give you the right curse for somebody. He didn't want to be remembered for that. He'd rather die. But notice what he says as to, to why that anyone should make my boasting void. Now, that is a strange sentence, isn't it? Because boasting for us usually implies pride, right? We boast and we think of a prideful boast. But boasting, kalchema, is used 11 times in the New Testament. And seven of those times you see it translated boasting. But guess what? Four of those times it's actually translated as rejoicing. Rejoicing. Boasting is usually a sin because it comes out of a place of pride. But Paul's boasting was something he rejoiced in, He's saying. It didn't come from pride. He says, I just didn't want to make my rejoicing void. So the question becomes, well, what is Paul boasting about? What is his cause for rejoicing? Well, as you're going to see, it's a reward. And Paul, being kind of the dramatist that he is, he likes to keep us in suspense as to what that reward is. He's not going to tell us right away. So instead, he's going to tell us what the reward is not. (laughs) What the reward is not, and it's this, giving the message of the gospel. The reward for him is not actually giving, proclaiming that message of the gospel. Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Why? For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Whoa. You see this here? His preaching the gospel, that was not the reason to boast. He could not boast in the fact that he preached. And did you catch why? For necessity is laid upon me. Maybe you have a translation that says, for I am under compulsion. What does Paul mean there? How are you under compulsion? Do you remember his conversion on the road to Damascus? He was on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to persecute Christians, and he met the risen Jesus Christ. We looked at it last week. What did Jesus tell him he was going to do? He said, Paul is going to be a chosen vessel of mine so that he will make my name known before the Gentiles. A chosen vessel. He's saying, I chose Paul for something. And Paul, many years later, he's, he's recounting his conversion story before King Agrippa, and he says, Oh, therefore, King, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Not only was Paul obedient to that call that God had placed upon his life, but it went deeper than that. Paul understood that the call had been placed on him far earlier than that. In fact, look what he says to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul tells the Galatians, when did he receive the call? In his mother's womb. He's, that's when God separated me, set me apart for this ministry. That's when it happened. Before he was born. Do we have anybody else like that in scripture that we see? Certainly we do. What about John the Baptist? Remember, the angel goes to Zacharias, his father, and tells him that he's going to have a son that's going to go forward in the spirit and power of Elijah just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord? Did John the Baptist have a choice when he was born? Right, son, guess what? An angel told me, this is what you're going to do. Well, I wanted to be a farmer. No, John the Baptist just did it, didn't he? How about Jeremiah? You guys know about Jeremiah's ministry? He received a similar uh, commission in Jeremiah 1.5 before i formed you in the womb i knew you before you were born i sanctified you i ordained you a prophet to the nations this is crazy not just in the womb before you were formed in the womb a prophet and not even that god told him this is what you're going to do you're going to go preach for 40 years and no one's ever going to listen to you so have fun that's what that's what he tells him to do and i mean jeremiah got discouraged wouldn't you This is going to be my ministry. I'm going to preach like day in and day out and no one's, people are just going to walk out the door and never listen to anything I say. Like that's what he said. He got so discouraged, he says, I will not make mention of him nor speak anymore in his name. That was it, I'm done. I'm not saying anything more about God. That was in the heat of the moment. But then he goes on, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back. I can't not. I have to do it, he says, right? When he was trying to stop sharing the gospel, he just couldn't. Why? Because he was under compulsion. That's what Paul is saying. Right? He had a calling to preach, and his ability to preach, those were not things that he could boast or rejoice in, because they were both from God. It had absolutely nothing to do with him. Does that make sense? 2 Corinthians 4 7 says this but we have this treasure in heaven, earth and vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. That it's of him and not of us. It has nothing to do with us. Look what he says in verse 17. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. See what he says there? The key word is if, right? If. If I do this willingly, if I do it voluntarily or unforced, right? If God wasn't forcing me to do this, well, in that case, I could receive a reward. I could say, God, look what I'm doing for you. I'm going about in the world, I'm sharing the gospel because I love you and I want to. He says, if I was doing it that way, then of course I, would, I could say reward. Look at me. Look how godly I am. But because, he says, I, 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 I had to do it, I was under compulsion, I couldn't take that as a reward. He says, but if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Ah, that's how Paul viewed the ministry. It was something he had to do. It was something he was compelled to do. It was something he was entrusted with. And that's why he told, like the Colossians, he told other churches, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. Like, that's why I became a minister. It was a stewardship. God gave me something. I had to be a good steward of it. It was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. He was not to be rewarded for doing what he was commanded to do, which was to preach the gospel. Now listen, let me take you to something. Jesus taught the same thing. He's not just pulling this out of the blue. Let me take you to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I think this is really, really important. Luke chapter 17, very famous passage. The apostles say, oh, Lord, increase our faith, right? And so he says, oh, if you have a faith of mustard seed, and he does that whole mustard seed thing, right? You can pick up a tree out of the roots and plant it wherever you want, that whole thing. But Luke chapter 17, verse 7, he goes on. These are the words of Jesus, speaking to the disciples here which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field come at once and sit down to eat but will he not rather say to him prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till i've eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink does he think that the servant because he did the things that were commanded him uh, does he sorry thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him i think not So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. Wow. Jesus says, listen, don't expect a reward for simply doing what you have commanded to do as servants. You're a servant, a servant serves, right? That's what he says. Now this brings up a good question, doesn't it? Can God's call be ignored or neglected? When God's call is upon your life, and when I mean call, I mean like a call to ministry. We are making a distinction here, a call to ministry. Paul was called to a ministry, ministry to the Gentiles. Can it be ignored? Can it be neglected? Do you ever think of anybody in scripture who received a certain call and ignored it, tried to neglect it? Where's your mind go automatically? Guy had to be swallowed by a fish to figure it out. Jonah, right? (laughs) I'm not going to Nineveh. You're out of your mind, God. I'm going the other way. God says, oh really? Chomp, right? Fish, vomit you on the ground. And, and Jonah just finally said, yeah, I guess I'll do it. You know, it doesn't mean his heart was right, but he had to do what God called him to do. That is particular to ministry. I believe I was called to ministry. I, I didn't want to do ministry. I wanted to be an actor. Thank you very much. I make, you know, millions of dollars to be on TV and, you know, People just bring stuff to me, and I can do whatever I want. That's what I wanted to do. But God, I was driving one day. God put a mountain in my my way, and I hit it. This accident was my wake-up call. It was that point that I began to go, hmm, maybe God has something different for my life. John MacArthur, you're familiar with John MacArthur, right? He was the son of a very famous teacher, pastor, And everyone expected him to go to ministry, and he was not to have it. He said, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to follow my father. I had sports on the mind, he said. He said, then God threw me out of a car, and I went, it's ministry. (laughs) Ministry it is. You win, God. Because it was the call of God in his life. Paul says his ministry was a stewardship, and he could not claim a reward for simply being faithful to that ministry. It's okay, then. You might say, well, what is the reward? Here is the reward. The reward is giving the gospel freely. And he tells us in verse 18. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul did not want money to hinder the gospel. He felt that would be abusing his authority. He wanted to present the gospel or, or offer it free of charge. And I think that's the beautiful message of the gospel, isn't it? Even today, money kind of hinders the message of the gospel. A lot of people think pastors and preachers are doing that because they want money. But the message of the gospel is it's free to you and me. It costs you nothing. Ephesians two eight nine right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one will boast. We all know that, you know, familiar New Testament passage. But you know where that comes from? It comes from the Old Testament. Let me show you Isaiah 55, 1. He talks about this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How can you buy wine and milk and whatnot without money? But Isaiah says, no, you can come and buy these things without money. That's the message of the gospel. It's a free thing. In fact, listen to Spurgeon's comment on that passage. People must not worry because they do not have great possessions having nothing, people may yet possess all things. People are at no disadvantage in God's market because their pockets are empty. They may come penniless and bankrupt and receive the exceeding riches of his grace. But the main reference in this verse is a spiritual one. And so the portrait here is that of people who have no spiritual money, no gold of goodness, no silver of sanctity, they are still invited to come and buy the wine and milk of heaven from a gracious God. That's the idea there. And listen, folks, if we want the gospel to be presented as something that's free, we can't hinder it with money. We support a missionary friend who's, who's uh, been working for years to the tribes of Papua New Guinea. been been working for years on language study and culture study, right? And only recently has made herself out to the villages and the tribes and trying to settle in and from there going further out to try to learn more language. Now, could you imagine that they go out there and they're building these relationships, they're learning these languages, they finally convert some people to the gospel, right? They say, hey, let's build a church, and they build a church. Great. Now you need to support us. You need to give us money. What are those people going to think? All these white people coming in here trying to say, they just want our money. That's what they're going to think, isn't it? That's why they're missionaries. They're supported from us back home. We say, don't, don't let money hinder the gospel. They'll think it's about money. And Paul, at the start of the church, he, he didn't want that to happen. He didn't want to be compromised. He wanted the gospel to be understood as something that was free, free to all. So that was his first thing. He wanted to guard his reward. And the reward for Paul was to say, I can give this freely. I'll happily build tents all my life. So you know that, that it's not about money. I want to guard that reward. The other point is this. It was to gain others for Christ. Obviously, that was his main motivation. It's verses 19 to 27 here. And here in these verses, he's going to give us two ways in which he sought to accomplish this. And I think these are applicable to all of us, as all of us, if we're Christians, should admit that we want to see others for Christ. We want want to see that happen. We want to gain others for Christ. But Paul says, listen, that doesn't just happen. You don't just roll out of bed as a believer and go, all right, you know, Hope hope somebody comes to faith today. (laughs) Paul didn't. Paul says it takes some effort. Two disciplines in particular, self-denial and self-control. And we're going to look at these two. First, self-denial. Verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. All right. So what's Paul saying here? He's a free man. He is a free man. He's not a slave. But he's also free like the Corinthians. He has freedom in Christ, doesn't he? Right? He's not under the law He's not under bondage. He doesn't have to observe feasts and festivals. He doesn't have to sacrifice a lamb. He's speaking here in that sense, but also he literally wasn't a slave. He was a free man. Yet he says, I made myself a servant of all. Made myself a servant. Two words in the Greek there. It is a very strong word that means to enslave oneself, to place in bondage. That's a strong word. Paul says, I am free, and I'm free like you, Corinthians, free to do what? But instead, I actually place myself in bondage to others. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he says, whoever you desires to be first shall be what of all? Slave of all. Slave, he says. So how did Paul choose to become a slave of all? How did he make that work? He's given us three illustrations with that because Paul loves to give us illustrations within illustrations. (laughs) So he's given us three here. And the first was this, "To, to the Jews he became a Jew. Look at verse 20. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. So the ones that are under the law, those are the Jews. And he says, for to, to, to reach the Jews, I became as a Jew, which is a funny thing for Paul to say because he was a Jew. <laughs> he says, to win the Jews, I became a Jew, but I am a Jew. So in what way did he become a Jew? Well, first of all, he was an apostle to the Gentiles, wasn't he? But he never, never lost his heart for his own countrymen, never. I mean, you see Paul passionately pray, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel that they might be saved. Paul never lost that heart. That's why his practice was to go into a new city. And where did he go first? The Jewish synagogue. And he'd go in there and he'd preach the gospel and he'd win a few converts and they would become his partners in ministry in that Gentile city. And then he'd go and preach it in the Gentiles. And that's that's how he worked. But what does he mean here that he became a Jew? Well, he kind of tells us here, to those who are under the law, that's the Jews, they live under the Mosaic law. To those who are under the law, as under the law. Like, I, I lived as if I were under that law. Now, notice that he adds a little phrase there. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now, you in your Bible might have a little number one next to the word law. And that is because it's to take you to the margin. And in the margin, it tells you that in the oldest, most reliable manuscripts, a phrase exists in those manuscripts that hasn't been added in the translation that you have. And in the translation, uh, uh, sorry, the, the addition should say, though not being myself under the law. It's a safeguard that has been placed there. He says, to reach those Jews um, who are under the law, I became a, as under the law. And then the added part would say, though not being myself under the law. That's for us to understand. Like, Paul didn't, he didn't, he understood He wasn't saying, I think I'm really under the law. No, he knew he was free under the law. He was under grace, right? New Testament Christians were under grace. You're not under law. You're not under bondage to those ceremonies and rituals and feasts and foods and all those things. He's under grace. But he was willing, he's saying, to refrain from certain foods, to, to go into their presence on a special day and observe a special feast or go to a certain purification ceremony. He became as much a Jew as he could. Why? So that he could gain an audience to the Jews. You see, he wanted to reach them, right? If he went in there and said, all this stuff you're doing is absolute rubbish, do you think anyone would want to hear anything he had to say? Not at all. Not a chance. Instead, he said, I'm going to be as much a Jew as I can, although myself, I know I'm not under the law, but I'm going to be as if I were under the law. And when you read the book of Acts, you see many examples of Paul doing this. He even did this to Timothy. Poor Timothy, right? Timothy wanted to come along with Paul in ministry, and we're told that that Paul had him circumcised, quote, because of the Jews that were in that region. Now, that was probably not the favorite experience of Timothy. He was probably going, Paul, now is this really necessary? Right? Do we really need to go this far? But if you remember Timothy, he had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and obviously the father went out on that initial argument about circumcision. But, but he was raised under the law, the Jewish law, and the scriptures he understood. So that's the part the mother went out on. But he says to go along with Paul in ministry, we're going to the Jews first. You probably need to be circumcised, and he did. Paul himself participated in in purification ceremonies for the Jews. I mean, he did it with four other Jewish Christians, and he did it to, I think, really prove to his Jewish critics that he wasn't saying, throw out all the Old Testament law, forget anything Moses talked about. He wasn't saying that. And you can read about it in Acts 21. We don't have time today. Uh, You might remember he even shaved off his head and took a Jewish vow um, in Sancria, and I think probably for the sake of those local Jews. You might be going, well, you know, Paul was arguing with Peter about these things. Why was he doing it? Because he wanted to win the Jews. He didn't mind shaving his head for a bit. In fact, I mean, you know, maybe you just need to sometimes, right? Like, so, I'll do whatever you say. Shave my head, fine. Not eat meat, fine. Whatever I need to do so I can reach the Jews. He acted like a Jew in every way to gain them for Christ. Now, listen, I must say. This isn't about blowing your testimony. That's not what he's saying. It's pre-evangelism, pre-evangelism. You are gaining a foot in the door to evangelize. But the second illustration he gives us in verse 21, I think is helpful to understand how we cannot blow our testimony in the midst of this. To those who are without the law, so these are Gentiles, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. All right. So what is Paul saying here? Well, those to reach those who are without the law, I became as without the law. So is Paul saying, so be lawless, right? Throw out the law. Go and reach Gentiles. Just go, go act like a Gentile. No, he gives us another safeguard here, right? Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of these young churches right coming in we want to go reach uh the the people that are in the pubs and the bars and so we're going to go in there we're going to drink with them we're going to get drunk with them and i'm thinking i don't think so because they look at this passage and they look further on where paul says i become all things to all men by any means and they forget this part that gives us a safeguard that says oh no but you are under law toward god what kind of law are we under toward god moral law this might shock you and this is just for the parents but i had read an article." that there were Christian couples who were being groomed to go and try to infiltrate groups of Christian swingers where they swap couples because after all, they need to be saved. So we're going to become swingers to save all. You see how you can twist this passage? No, we don't become anything. We're under law toward God and under law toward Christ. What is that? That's the law of love. So I have the moral law of God I must still live under. I don't kill. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't all those things, right? No sexual morality. But I also have a love for people under Christ. We don't violate God's moral law in order to win people to Christ. That's a perversion of what this passage says. And then he gives us the f- third illustration in verse 20, um, 22 here. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. Who are the weak here? Well, probably just following along with what Paul has already been talking about this far, the weaker brothers in Corinth, Right? That's really what he's addressing. He's still talking to these mature Christians in Corinth who were saying, those guys, they don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, but I'm going to eat up because I know an idol's nothing. Remember that argument? He says, yeah, but to the weak, you know, I'll become as weak. I'm not going to hammer them down with all this theology to say, oh, you know, because that could harm their conscience. Remember that? They were weak in understanding, new believers. And if you think about Paul, he kept his messages simple, didn't he? Even when he first came to Corinth, He said to them, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, right? I didn't come with all this profound talk, eloquent speech. No, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all I wanted you to know. He just kept it simple to the point. Here's the gospel. Here's what it's about. Let's not dirty it up with all these other things. And then Paul summarizes his point that second half of verse 22 I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, you can go there now, having seen the safeguards that came before. But you can't go straight to chapter 20, or verse 22 and say, Look at that, I become, I become anything, anything I want, because after all, I need to save those people. You're under moral law to God. But all things, all men, all means within those confines, absolutely. Just remember those safeguards. And then verse 23 Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Here's Paul's whole point, really, isn't it? I do this for the sake of the gospel. I do this that I may be a a partaker with you. You know, when you lead someone to Christ, you see someone become a new believer. I mean, you're a benefit. You benefit from that, don't you? There's just such rich blessings. You become a partaker with that. Paul talked about his being a spiritual father, right, to them. It's an amazing thing to see sinners... Saved, And he says, I want to be a partaker of that with you. And that's why Paul has refused his liberty. And he exercised self-denial. I could do these things, but instead I'm going to deny myself the meat and whatever, and I'll be a Jew. I, I could do these things, but I'll, instead I'll deny myself and I'll go in as a Gentile. I could, do, I could demand this, but they're weak in understanding. And so I'll set those th- things aside. you see what he's saying? Self-denial. That's hard. We don't want to deny self. Self usually reigns. Usually, it's the other way around. I'll start with self, and then I'll see what I have left over for people and see if I can win them for Christ. Paul says it starts the other way around. I go, how can I deny things in my life that, would, that maybe could obscure the gospel, maybe hinder the gospel, maybe cause someone to stumble? I need to start there. But he also, he's exercised another discipline in order to win souls, and it's self-control. Through self-control. And he illustrates it, again, with a metaphor. The metaphor of running a race, any runners in the room, any people like to run? Some of you are like, like to run? (laughs) How do you get joy from exhaustion, right? But Paul, (laughs) Paul talks about running a race here. Now, this would have meant a lot for the Greeks. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. The Greeks had two main games, didn't they? They had the Olympics, but they also had the Isthmian Games. Remember Corinth was on that Isthmian Peninsula there. They had these special games there that, were, that required tremendous rigorous training. If you wanted to enter the game, here's what you had to do. For 10 months, you had to sign up for rigorous training and to prove that you committed to the t- uh, 10 months of training. On the 11th month, you had to come in and you had to train and work out in the gyms in Corinth as an official contestant in the games. And then in the 12th month, you competed in the games. And the the main highlight of the games was the race. And so when Paul gives this metaphor, boy, this this would ring true and make it clear in the eyes of the uh, Corinthians here, all right? Paul is using this metaphor to illustrate the faithful Christian life here. Now, in the race of those Isthmian games, there would be one winner, wouldn't there? There'd be one first place person to win that race. And in Corinth's case, you would get this pine wreath is what you'd get. However, there is a difference between that race and the race of the Christian life. And that is this Um, there's not just one winner. Paul's point is not that there's only one winner in the Christian race, so like we're competing against one another. We, We aren't. We don't do that. We compete against what? What do you compete against in the race? You compete against obstacles like your flesh. Often you're competing against you. That's true of any runner. Runners will tell you the greatest challenge in a long run is the mental challenge. It's not the physical. If you've done your training, this is a machine, people. God has made us amazingly, incredibly, you know, incredible bodies that are strong. If you start to just train, your body just becomes a machine. It just knows what to do. But you know where you battle? It's the mental. It's the mental. When I ran the marathon, I remember, you know, mile 19 was about the time I was despairing of life. I I was like, Lord, just take me now. Not because the, I loved running, but remember, I told you before, we ran in such, it was a monsoon, basically, we had to run in. It was awful. But you, you battle yourself, you battle spiritual obstacles, mental ones, physical ones. But what is a winner in the context of what Paul's talking about? In the context of this passage, it is saving souls, A lot of times we just go to this passage, we pull it out, we just say, hey, this is all about eternal life, it's just about salvation, we pull out a context, but if you look at what Paul has been talking about, he's been talking about winning souls for Christ. Look at verse 25. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Temperate, there's the word, that word is self-controlled, that's where it comes from right? Everyone who competes for the prize, he's saying everyone in the race competing for that prize is temperate, is self-controlled. Don't you have to be, if you're an athlete, self-controlled in your training. You absolutely do. You set aside your own personal desires and rights. Listen, you don't wake up at 4.30 in the morning because you're like, hey, beautiful time to be up. It's because you're, you got to train, right? I can tell you how many times that Reese kept moving the running time earlier and earlier. I was like, 6 o'clock's fine. Now you're talking about 5, I'm getting at 4.30. Now you're, now you're you know, you starting to make me uncomfortable here. But you do it because you know what you, your training is required. You could eat a hot fudge sundae before you started the race. but That probably is not going to serve you very well, right? Your body could, you could do it, but it wouldn't be smart. So, see, so a runner, an athlete, they have to, like, look at what they're eating, look at how they're sleeping. Prioritize their training, I remember when I was training for the mar- marathon, we, we didn't I s- make it sound like it was, it was just a bunch of pastors. Said, hey, let's go run a marathon because we're done. But we, we just, I s- asked somebody and they said, well, you probably should cut out a couple things that you eat. And I said, well, what kind of thing? They said, well, no soda and no ice cream. And I said, kill me now. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I love soda. I had a Coca-Cola. I had a Coca-Cola picture in my office at church. It had the world and it had this giant hand of God holding a bottle of Coke. I said, look, when God rested, he made Coke. And I, I love drinking Coke. So I said, okay, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola for four months. Okay, I could probably do that. What else? Ice cream. Oh, ice cream. Like, oh, if I could pick one dessert, it would be ice cream. Whenever it was like, oh, what do you want to do for your 50th birthday? If we weren't in lockdown, we said, everybody, Coco Gelatos, I'm buying everybody ice cream. That would have been my birthday. I'm like, let's eat ice cream. But no Coke and no ice cream. But I understood why. Those things won't do my body well in the training process. So I have to exercise self-control. And an athlete subject, subjects themselves to rigorous training, exercises tremendous amounts of self-control to gain a prize that is only perishable. You think about those Olympic athletes who train so, so much, right? And there are then private private instructors that are training them, and they're going to all these competitions throughout the year, hoping to get the Olympics so that they can get this medal hung around their neck that was probably worth 150 pounds, right? You know, like, like that is it. It's a perishable thing but but paul says but we run in order to obtain an imperishable crown something that won't perish in fact he says it's a crown of righteousness which the lord himself on that righteous day will give to me so we're we're running to get something that's going to last forever and jesus himself is going to give you would you not want to exercise some self-control for that like i i keep your eyes on that like that oh yeah i want that that's that's amazing He says, Peter says it's an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. I think Christians just need to be willing to set aside rights, going back to the subject, liberties, so that we don't lose the race of soul-saving, so we don't hinder the gospel. Look what he says in verse 26. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Can I just tell you, in the 18 and a half years of ministry I've been in, I've seen a lot of, I almost, majority of Christians I've seen are running with uncertainty. They don't really know why they're a Christian, don't really know why they come to church, don't really know why they should read the Bible. They're running with uncertainty. What's it all about? I mean, is it all about just getting to heaven? Is that what it is? Is that the end of the race? Is that what he's talking about here? Is that it? I think far too often we look back to some past experience and say, well, that's when it happened back then. I said that prayer, and I just sit back, and I'm going to go to heaven. I just Where, where do you see that in Paul's example here? You're in a race, and you're running, not with uncertainty. You know what you're here for, and you know what you're here to do. But So many think it's just all about that. You know what? I wouldn't look back at these past things. I would look at the things that are present in your life. Who do you love? What's important to you? How important is Jesus to you? How important is his church to you? How important is the word of God to you? Paul knew his goal. He wasn't running with uncertainty. In fact, he stated it over and over again in verses 19 to to 22. Let me just read those to you. That I might win the more. That I might win the Jews. That I might win those who are under the law. That I might win those who are without the law. That I might win the weak. That I might by all means save some. He was running with certainty. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew what he needed to do to accomplish it. But listen, if you don't know where you're going, what you're doing, of course you're not going to have self-denial, self-control. You don't know what you're in it for. You know the job of a pastor or a teacher or a preacher is? is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. But so many Christians think it's the work of the pastor or the teacher. But no, it's, it's my job is to equip you. you. You do the work of ministry. And what's the work, work of the ministry? Saving souls. So yeah, you can bring unbelieving people into the church. That's fine, but that's not your work of ministry. Ah, brought someone into the seat. Well, that was accomplished my, accomplished my duty. You, you go out and be a witness. You go out and share the gospel. Yeah, bring people in, but yeah, listen, I'm here to equip you to the work of ministry. So listen, we're all in the same race. we all have the same goal, and we run with certainty. And Paul changes the metaphor on us. Did you notice it? He changes it from running to boxing. In the middle of the verse why do you do these things paul thus i fight not as one who beats the air <laughs> why is he talking about this all of a sudden listen he's in a race he's in a real race it's a fight it's a challenge and i'm not shadow boxing there's not an imaginary opponent as one beating the air i'm not just sort of working up a sweat in my training as a Christian. He says, I am in a fight. I am in a race, and I know the enemy. Now listen, many Christians are just sitting on the sidelines watching everyone else run the race. Paul says, no, go get in the race. Go get in the fight. Lazy and undisciplined Christians are the ones that run with uncertainty, live with uncertainty. Paul says, know what you're here for, Live like this. And that's going to affect how you live with one another in the church, which is bringing all back around to the whole subject. Look at verse 27. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Discipline is piazzo, and it literally means to beat black and blue. And it has to do with under the ice. Giving a black eye to my body is what he's saying. I won't let my body dictate my needs. I'm going to subject my body, and if it gets in my way, I'm going to give my body a black eye. Now, I don't recommend that. Don't go punching yourselves in the eye and say, oh, Kevin said I need to punch myself. What he's saying is, is that he would beat his own body up and make it his slave rather than let his body dictate. But how many Christians just live by the flesh, right? I mean, we do it naturally anyway. Like, well, time to eat, my body says so. Time to sleep, my body says so. And those things are natural. But think about all the other things that we live by in the flesh. And we're just subject to the flesh, subject to the flesh. And Paul says, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to discipline my body. And when it rises up and is an obstacle to me, I'm knocking it down. I will not be a slave to my body. An athlete can't do that. You must master your body. He follows the rules of the training, not his body. He leads his body. He's not led by his body. And that's Paul's point. And why? Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become Disqualified. You know, the athlete for the Isthmian Games who failed to maintain his training, he didn't stick to those 10 months of training, he was disqualified because he didn't meet the training requirements. What's Paul's point here? He's chosen the gospel. Soul saving to Paul is about, that's everything to him. That's everything to him. And if he were to allow his his body to get in the way, allow flesh to get in the way, he could disqualify himself. He could go to a group of people, right, and say, "Here's this free gospel." Yet they saw him doing something in his flesh and say, "No, no, you got nothing." I remember a, a pastor—I don't remember who it was. I think it was from Focus on the Family. He came to our home church in the states to share a story. Right, Focus on the Family is a huge Christian ministry on the radio, huge. And a guy has was led to the Lord through that ministry, right? And one time, I, I wish I could remember his name. The guy on the show went to. It, to Philadelphia, they're known for these um, awesome sandwiches there, right? You can get these Philly cheesesteak sandwiches, that like, or to die for. You probably will die if you eat one. But he, he went in to get the steak, and it was just at the time of closing. And the guy says, oh, I'm sorry, we're closed. And, he, you know, he just had his heart for this sandwich. And he says, but, but I, I mean, it's, it's just right now in time. Just can you make a sandwich? He kind of was cranky. He was in a day, right? I mean, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't curse at the guy. He was just, he kind of threw it a little bit of a tizzy, right? I really need a sandwich and, you know, whatever. Anyway, he he went home um, to his hotel and he received an email from a lady. The lady says, hey, listen, heard you were in town. Uh, You went to my husband's restaurant and you were going to order a sandwich. And and listen, he came to faith under your ministry, but your attitude to him really, really shook him. And he's discouraged and and, and, uh, I, I think you really harmed him. And so he told us his testimony. He goes, yeah, I went back to that place the next day, you know, and, I, and I went to him, and I, I tried to explain to him that I was, you know, end of the day, I was hungry, I had my heart set on the sandwich, and it was wrong, you know, but I, and he said, I just apologized to these blank eyes. I'd already done the damage. The guy had no respect for me. It doesn't matter what I said. The guy, he just, I, I disqualified myself. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul says, I, I will bring my body into subjection because I don't want to be disqualified from the race, from ministry. You have these Corinthian believers who just wanted to exercise their rights, right? And yeah, you can fulfill your freedoms, but that often interferes with fulfilling love. And Paul chose love. He chose love. Love of all men that they might know Christ. I just wanted to end by reading you an amazing quote that I um, read actually this morning. So I just added this, uh, based on this passage. It's Charles Spurgeon. It's based off of verse 22, so that I may by every possible means save some. He says this, that the passion for saving sinners is implanted into all believers for at least three reasons. And I'll just give you the reasons. First is for God's glory. Second, for the church's good. And third, for the good of all the individuals that possess it. Now, let me just read you what he says about that third one. Work for Jesus keeps us strong in faith and intense in love to him. Soul winning keeps the heart lively and preserves our warm youth in Christ. It is a mighty refresher to decaying love, mm. love for souls will, in the end, bring to all who have it the highest joy beneath the stars—the joy of knowing that they have been made the spiritual parents of others. That's what kept Paul going. Yes, he knew he had salvation, but he was—he was running this this race to bring as many people to the end with him as he could. That's the challenge. And as he's talking to this church, he says, let's not do anything as a church that will hinder the race. Let's not hinder one another. You could be in the race and by your own lack of discipline, hinder a fellow brother. If you were at a physical race, right, and running with, we were all running together, if one of us stumbled, we would all probably stop to help him up, right? Come on. But how many times just in the way we live, we're happy to see people stumble because, well, I would have to give something up. Paul says, listen, no, no, you discipline that. You put that under control. That's your flesh. Self-denial, self-control. Why? Ultimately, because we're trying to bring people to to Christ. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. The challenging words from Paul to us. uh, Ultimately, from from you, God. Um, Lord, it's so easy to live in the flesh. It, It really is. It's so easy to just want what we want and to really just have uncertain goals in life. Maybe it's just material things. Maybe it's success in business or career or it's relationships or money, whatever it might be. But Paul's purpose in in this world was absolutely clear. He just wanted to see souls saved. Lord, may you remind your church why we're here. We're not here to make our name great. We're not here to to build uh, huge buildings and make... um, big names of, of of our denominations and our people. Lord, we're here to make the name of Christ known, and Lord, we, we want your name to be known, and I just pray that we would all be willing to just soul search, to crucify whatever flesh is trying to get in the way. Lord, this is to all of us, this message. Paul is very clear. We're, we're in a race. It takes discipline. It takes um, effort. We've got to know what we're doing and why we're doing it, and Lord, I just thank you for that reminder of that perspective today given to us, Lord. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to live for you. And Lord, by these transformed lives that you've given us, we would draw many to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.